Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Man, it feels like seat of your pants time right now, doesn't it, everybody? Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. It's the holiday season. It's the Omicron season. It's Rose Bowl season. It's playoff season. It's NFL games getting delayed season. And it's rapid fire season. We're going to run through a bunch of questions from the tech subscribers. And Nathan and Stephen, I will tell you, you know, we're trying to figure out our pod schedule. Everybody's kind of got individual holiday things they're trying to do. Um, trying to make plans. And I sent out the call to the tech subscribers and they responded with 140 questions immediately. And Nathan, I think we might scrap some of the stuff that I thought we were going to do and just do like multiple rapid fire this week, because why not let our people carry us? Because they're so good at it. These questions are so good. And I want to acknowledge their thought and like this state of the program pod that I've been talking about, there's just no reason for us to try to squeeze it in. We'll do it after the season when like we know who the assistant coaches are that are here, we're not going to do it this week. It just doesn't make sense to do it when we have, we have this many good questions, Nathan, from our smart, from our smart folks. We try to put ourselves in the mind of the fan as we approach a lot of things with this job. And I think we do a pretty good job of that, but I think sometimes it's easier to just say, just show us your brain. Let's not, we don't have to guess what your brain looks like and is doing right now. Just take it out and show it to us. And that's what the rapid fire and that's what the, the text questions allow us to do. Uh, it's it's my, my favorite part of the texts is really like hearing from even not even not when we're doing rapid fire. It's just hearing from our, our listeners and having them tell us like, hey, I need to know about this. Go find this out or or tell me what you think. That's the best. It's the best use of it from from our end. So it's going to be a little seat of the pants this week. I do really want to do, and I have to double check this. I do want to do some kind of Utah breakdown just from watching some stuff and maybe try to have somebody on, but we'll, we'll work that out. I will say, are you guys YouTube TV subscribers? Either of you YouTube TV? Yep. I was not. I was, but then I wasn't for about 24 hours. And then I was again. So here's the thing that I'm worried about. I survived not having the tangerine bowl on on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is that we missed. But I literally recorded almost every game played by almost every team that matters in college football this year. 
And every game that you had recorded that was on ESPN or ABC, when they had the disagreement at Disney, Mm -hmm. those got wiped. And so now that it's back, I have not yet looked to see if my recordings are back, but I'm skeptical and I'll report, I'll report on that later, but it's like the Fox games are there. The CBS games are there. You know, I have Ohio state, Michigan, but every Ohio state game that was on ESPN or ABC was gone. And I'm just, I'm like, are they going to know what I had and give me those back? It's like, Hey, great. You worked out your thing. I can tell you a little bit right now. The just obviously because I have all the Ohio State games recorded, they're there. They are there. Yes, I have the I have the Penn State Ohio State game playing at this moment just to make sure that I feel better because I think I have some Utah games in there. I think I have some Utah games in there, and so I want to watch Utah. But I was like, well, I can't watch Utah because they got wiped. So okay, we'll be okay. Let's get to the questions. First one I really like. This is from the four one nine. What would this season have looked like had Chris Olave simply declared for the NFL draft and Jamison Williams had remained in Columbus? Would the offense have been more dynamic with his catch and run ability and deep threat ability that seems on par with Olave's? What would have become of Bama? Steven, this is an interesting question because all this transfer stuff, we always talk about it. There's the what you get and there's the what somebody else loses, right? There's the double whammy here. What's that scenario like from both sides, Stephen? Jamison Williams is a Buckeye this year, and Chris Olave is in the NFL. Bama's not in the playoff because they probably lose another game because it was shown, especially when he got ejected for targeting, he's their best weapon and often their only weapon. And so there's that part of it. I think from Ohio State's standpoint, I think he just might have Chris Olave stats. Which are fine, but when Chris Olave has those stats mixed with what his reputation already is, he's a first-rounder. While if Jamison Williams has that exact same stat line, what is it, uh, 65 catches for 936 yards and 13 touchdowns because he still is the deep threat in this offense, I don't know if that makes him a first-rounder because he doesn't have the reputation behind it. So I think everybody won in this situation. Ohio State still had the best wide receiver uh, trio in the country, and Chris Olave, Jackson, the Jigman, Garrett Wilson. Jamison Williams got to go somewhere where he got to not only be a guy, but the one and only guy and put up these type of numbers that make him a first-rounder and maybe even the first or second wide receiver taken off the board, depending on how crazy some teams want to get here. And Bama got, got a chance to be a playoff team. Is there any scenario where we believe Ohio State's offense would have been better with Jamison Williams instead of Chris Olave? And specifically, is there any chance that Ohio State is in the playoff with Jamison Williams because – it's better enough that then they beat Oregon or Michigan as a result, Nathan. That second part is tough just because I, I mean, sure. If they had just been even greater on offense, um, I suppose they could have found a way to win those games, but you don't think of the offense being the reason they lost those games. And I don't know if the, what what's tricky also is there are the stats that a guy gets as a result of playing against how teams defend Ohio state. And then there's almost separate. I'm trying not to get too in the weeds with this, but there's also like the effect that a player has on how a defense approaches defending Ohio state. And I think that there with, with Chris Olave, um, especially early on in the season, there was probably a way that teams tried to take him away Um that I don't know if it would have been there for, for Jamison Williams quite the same way that he might've been able to like surprise people a, a little bit uh, in some ways. So I don't know. 
I think it's it's. I guess I wouldn't go so far as to think that it's what makes it's what pushes Ohio State in the playoff, because I, I don't think that the offense would have been that much better. I guess the other. I guess look at it this way: if Chris Olave had just gone to Alabama this year instead of Jamison Williams, if you're really flipping alternate realities, um, probably doesn't have the special teams impact that Jamison Williams does, but maybe has the receiving impact that Jamison Williams does. It's stunning to watch Jamison Williams catch a ball and explode like he has rockets strapped to his back, right? I mean, that guy's mm-hmm. speed is devastating. I do think we would all re- agree probably the impact is bigger if you take Jamison Williams off Alabama, right? That's the big part of what changes here because I don't – certainly Bama would have gotten a different receiver in the portal. They needed a receiver and they're Bama. So they would have gotten somebody else. I don't know who else it would have been. That person would not have been, have been as impactful as Jamison Williams. So the idea that what if Chris Olave had gone to the NFL? I think maybe the number one answer, if you list of, this is like if you give the mouse a cookie, right? You guys give a mouse a cookie. You guys give mice cookies. You know what I mean? You give a moose a We don't have mice. What? Yeah, we don't you guys have mice in the house. Uh, the kids, uh, kids books. If you give a mouse a cookie and then it's like a butterfly effect kind of thing for kids, you give a mouse a cookie and uh, you know, a dragon, a dragon eats a palm tree or something. I don't know. It's some kind of book. It's good. The give a mouse a cookie is number one is Bama doesn't make the playoff. If Chris Olave goes to the NFL blank might be Bama doesn't make the playoff. That's the first thing. I don't know that the Ohio state season changes, but it's just so hard to wrap your head around because they just didn't throw to Jamison Williams last year. And then Bama threw to him and he was like, Oh, he's a game changing guy. This makes me also want to look things up. If we were to look sort of at this transfer era of college football is Jamison Williams, the most impactful non-quarterback transfer. Oh, cause obviously so like number one is Joe Burrow. Number two is probably Justin Fields. Mm-hmm. And then like his number three, Jameis Williams in terms of like affecting the national landscape. Cause like you can make, you know, Kenneth Walker, the third is gigantic, but Michigan state didn't make the playoff, right? Kenneth Walker, the third helped Michigan state win 10 games and help them go. If they didn't have Kenneth Walker, the third this year, maybe Michigan state would have been six and six instead of 10 and two. But the bottom line is they still didn't win a national championship, right? Who had the greatest effect on the playoff? I actually should save this for the playoff show. Who had the greatest effect on the playoff? What transfers in this era, right? Henry Toto. I mean, he helped them this year, but not as much as Jamison Williams helped them, right? Trey Sermon is in there, right? In a top not 10 start to finish. Yeah. In a top 10 list, probably that like, if you don't, if you just have master Teague, you don't have Trey Sermon, do they somehow lose to Northwestern and Ohio state doesn't get there? Like, I don't, I don't know, but Jamison Williams is up there, but I, I don't think the Ohio state offense was worse because Chris Olave stayed at Ohio state. Again, we're having this conversation. Could Chris Olave simultaneously be the greatest receiver in Ohio state history. And the other guy who left was better than him. Like this, these conversations we keep having. It's so the thing, it makes me wish that even more that 2020 wasn't so messed up because I think part of why they didn't use Jamison Williams at all is yes, you have Chris and Garrett, but they were your only experienced receivers. And so when you have a season like that, when you might lose a game at any point, you just go with what you know. 
and you knew those two. And so it was easier to say, hey, Jamison Williams, run fast down the field and every so often we'll play pitch and catch with you. Had that year been normal, we can say the same thing about Jackson Smith and Jigba. Would he have carved out a role for himself had that been a 15-game season? I think you could say the same thing about Jamison Williams because there would have been opportunities for him to get featured more often had they had some of those, you know, give me game still on the schedule for him to get that necessary level of experience. So then if that happens, maybe he doesn't leave. Maybe he's still here because he's just a normal part of the passing game instead of just like this afterthought on the other side of the field. At the same time, this year's Ohio State offense proved that all three guys could eat and eat a lot. And last year, that really seemed to not be the case. And that's why I was I we can go back and listen to the pods before the season. Like I was fairly skeptical of what Jackson Smith, the Jigma might do statistically this year, simply because I assumed, I mean, you still got Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave on the field. Why won't the same share of, of targets be similar to what it was last year? You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't that, that ratio be uh, replicated somewhat? So that I I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Like why was it not more of a three-way split in 2020? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Is that more of a product of, talent or just circumstances they just needed to find ways to win games or just get the two guys you know can do with the ball that that if justin in a weird year you leaned even more on the guys you trusted and you knew Mm -hmm. and it was harder to break through in a weird year the the other thing i do think i do think the way chris garrett and jackson fit together was pretty good Jameson and Chris just seem more duplicative of each other. And that if they're two yeah. of your three, I understand why maybe it, you know, just like the national championship team, it's like Michael Thomas, Devin Smith, Evan Spencer, just like really, really fit together, you know, and everybody kind of had the thing they did. I thought that to your point, Nathan, that I don't know that every single time three great receivers will fit together the way these guys fit together, but they had a high flying, high powered offense run by a very capable quarterback who knew how to use them with the play caller who knew how to use them. But they also, I think, complemented each other with their skill sets rather than duplicate each other. And Jamison just caught, got caught a little bit in between, but it is going to be, it's possible that playoff season is Jamison Williams season because John Mechie's out. This guy might have 200 receiving yards in each of the two playoff games. I mean, honestly, he might carry, we might come out of this as one of these like, hey, Bryce Young won the Heisman. Will Anderson might be the best defensive player in college football. And Jamison Williams carries Alabama to the national championship. That is on the table because this is high-level stuff. And that guy is absolutely almost singularly the explosive acts aspect of the Alabama offense. Because everything else they do is like a power run game with Brian Robinson. They got a couple tight ends they work in, but man, their drop off at receiver right now, Slade Bolden and some really young guys. They had a guy who like caught the go ahead touchdown against Auburn. It was like his fifth catch of the year. I mean, like they're just down to nothing without Mechie. And so, like, this is this is Jamison Williams time. It's fascinating to think about. All right. This is another oh, go ahead, go ahead, finish that off, Nathan. I just want to make a quick point because this came up. I was writing a piece uh, for our, our little Buckeye bits thing about Jackson Smith, the jig, but the last four games of the regular season, 45 catches for 611 yards. And maybe, I don't know that we talked quite enough about that. Now that was the, the, the first of those four games was the big explosion against Nebraska, the 240 yard game. But like his last four games have been, 
even more productive than he was throughout the whole course of the season. It's just as we look for guys who are like maybe turning a corner, as good as he was all year, I'm wondering if like is is he showing a little bit of what next year could be like. If you prorate those numbers, which isn't fair, you prorate those four games over a whole season, the numbers are, are kind of insane. It's like 130 catches for 1,800 yards or something like that. Unbelievable. And it is fascinating to see where they're going to wind up using him next year. Uh, we have an Urban Meyer question, a Luke Fickle question, some Michigan questions, coaching change questions, a Spider-Man question, and a question about my wife. We'll see if we get to all of them. And if not, we'll get to them on a later rapid fire from the five, one, three. If you were advising Paris Johnson jr. And both Dewan Jones and Nicholas Petit prayer decide to stay. Would you tell him to transfer Nathan? This is again, this is a very similar situation, right? Talent squeeze. And it's just a reality. It's almost like Paris Johnson in his own way would be like in the Jamison Williams seat. If that happened, because Jamison Williams started for Ohio State last year, but he was kind of like third among the starters. And Paris Johnson started this year, but he was kind of like third or fourth in who's up at tackle. And if somehow both came back, what would you tell Paris, Nathan? Paris and or DeWand? No, it's if DeWand and MPF both stay. Oh, okay, what would I read you it tell wrong. Paris? I thought... So a year ago at this time, or a little bit later, I was the one arguing that Paris spending a year at guard was not catastrophic for his development, that he could still be a great left tackle in his third year and go on and be a high NFL draft pick, even if he spent this year at guard. But OSU recruited Paris Johnson to develop him into an NFL left tackle, and it owes it to him to follow through on that eventually. So under that scenario you're talking about, if NPF were coming back and Ohio State was committed to playing him at tackle, then yeah, I would probably tell Paris Johnson Jr. to go pick which school you want to play for because you could play pretty much anywhere for this third year and be showcased as much as you want for the NFL draft. I mean, he has to be a tackle, right? I mean, right. Stephen, is that that's that's is that up for debate? Paris Johnson must play tackle in 2022. Correct? Yes. Yes. So so that, whether it's in Columbus or anywhere else in the country. That's number one. Paris Johnson must play tackle, but I'm not so sure the conversation. So this is one of these things too. As crazy as it sounds, I almost like you kind of don't want them both to come back. Honestly, you well, don't was want gonna, both Dewan Jones and NPF. That was going to be my, my follow-up question was in this scenario you're putting out there, would Ohio state suggest to NPF as great as he's been that maybe he go do the grad year somewhere else. Or, I mean, I guess it, would it not be unfair to say Paris Johnson is playing tackle next year. If both you guys come back, we'll figure it out, but Hey, NPF, maybe you'll get some guard flexibility because Paris Johnson is playing tackle, right? Yeah. Like that, is that not number like on Ryan Day's to-do list for 2022? P Paris Johnson is playing tackle is pretty high on that list. It has to be. That's what I would tell them. But the thing is, it really did make sense for Thayer Munford to move inside because that probably is his NFL future to play more guard. I don't think that's true of NPF. And I know, I know it's not true of DeWan Jones. So uh, if you're committing to Paris Johnson Jr. as a tackle, which I think OSU 
uh, should and will do. I think they, again, I think they owe it to him at this point. You, you, you not only would hurt your relationship with him, but there would probably be long-term recruiting ramifications to bring Paris Johnson Jr. here and then pin him behind other guys his whole time here. Like that just doesn't make any sense. So you have to commit to him playing tackle next year. And those other two guys are future tackles. Those guys are pro tackles. So no, they wouldn't all three be back. One of Nicholas, those two guys would leave. Nick, they're going to tell Nicholas Petit Perry to go pro and keep saying go pro. because <laughs> He was the number one tackle in the 2018 recruiting class. And he, he's actually the only offensive lineman who had a higher star rating than Paris Johnson. So the way we talk about Paris, I'm sure when Nicholas Petit Frere committed here, I wasn't on the beach yet. You guys were talking about him in some similar light, even if it wasn't to this extreme. Because, I mean, this is a five-star recruit in his own right. So they're probably just telling him to go pro. Whatever his draft grade is, it can't be any lower than a second-round grade. No, I agree. So it's it's almost uh, – it's going to work out because he's going to go pro. Yeah. Because it – it doesn't make sense for him to not go pro, but it's almost like if whatever, right. If aliens came down and, and made him stay at Ohio state, I think, I think you honestly would have to move him to guard. Like, I don't think you have to like, and the other thing yeah. about this too, is like, there's the thing for the player, but as good as Nicholas Petit Frere was like, you, you might be a better team with Paris Johnson to tackle. Like you have to play Paris yeah. Johnson to tackle because it might help Ohio state win games too. Right. That that's, it, it, this is, it, this isn't like a charity case. Like, Oh, it's only fair. It's like, he's, he's that good. And by the way, it's one of these things. Again, there were times when we talked about this Ohio state team as like one of the best offensive lines of the country this year at times. Right. And then it was like, Oh, Aiden Hutchinson had a pretty good game against <laughs> against Ohio state. Right. So, you know, maybe, maybe you get even better with Paris Johnson at his natural position. Me, I, I think you're, you're right. That regardless of the ramifications for Ohio state, the advice that this coaching staff is probably giving Nicholas Petit Frere right now is go be in the NFL. Like you're ready for that. You've proven yourself ready for that. This is back-to-back years he's had that are pretty strong. So regardless of what it means for Ohio State, even if they had a huge hole at tackle next year, they'd probably say, we welcome you back, but it makes a lot of sense for you to go. But it's also, and this is what Greg Strujawa told me or told us. I mean, I was the one who asked a question one time, but is Paris Johnson at guard because he's the tackle of the three, I guess, options you had there between him and, and Dewan Jones and Nicholas Petit Fair, who could best play guard? And he said yes. So that was part of that process was that it – he was the more versatile of those tackles to go play guard. So I don't assume that Nicholas Petit Frere would necessarily be a really good guard just because he's a good tackle. It's also a case to be made that Nicholas Petit Frere at that time in their development might have just been the best pass pro guy, which is part of why they moved him to left tackle and kicked Thayer Munford in while Paris Johnson's in year two and a little bit more of an aggressive tackle who was awesome in the run game, but probably still needed to refine some of his pass pro skills, which is pretty normal for a tackle living in Ohio. That's, I mean, they don't pass the ball a lot here. So that probably played a role in it as well. But now you're talking about year three Paris Johnson, where, you know, he's been a starter for a year for an offense that threw the ball a lot. He's just kind of ready to be a tackle at this point in a way that he, you can make the argument. He maybe wasn't ready to do that in year two when you don't have to play him there. Yeah. It's just, and it's just one of those things. Like what if, the number one ranked tackle in his class decided to come back tackle. for a fifth year. 
Well, no, I mean, I'm talking about MPF. Oh, okay. Like, how do you project that? It's like, oh, he was a two-year starter, and he came back for a fifth year as a three-year starter when he was a five-star recruit, and he's projected <laughs> yeah. as a first-round pick. And it's like, he just decided to stay. And it was like, awesome. Because, like, you plan your roster based on assumptions, and who would have ever thought that that would ever happen? And here you are with too many tackles. This is, this is like, that'll be my kid's book. Too many tackles. The story of the, the 2021 Ohio State Buckeyes. Hold on. It's too many tackles with none coming in anytime soon. Too many tackles with none coming in. Oh, Ryan Day, where do you begin? Stud brought four guys in that seemed like too many. Now they're all leaving. That'll cost a pretty penny. All right, let me ask. That didn't work. I'll work on that. You know, I mean, well, that did work. Nil. That did work. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but but the Get conversation. Them a free car, but you want them to leave. There's so many tackles. You cannot believe the tackles. They're coming. They never do go. They stay and they stay. Oh yes, but oh no. Dewand on the right and PF on the left. Oh poor Paris. Well, now I'm out. He's maybe the best. <laughs> He's maybe the best. He's maybe the best. He tries and he tries and he blocks in the run game, but he wants to get to tackle to block Hutchinson. We're freestyle children's rhyming about offensive tackles. That's the kind of week it is here on Buckeye Talk. Now, I'll, I'll do it more like Eminem. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Pair. What are you going to say, Nathan? <laughs> I was going to say, just to kind of extend the offensive line conversation a little bit, because last year when Thayer Mumford announced he was coming back, we had a lot of conversations that were directly about, isn't Thayer Mumford's decision sort of screwing Paris Johnson a little bit? By the time we got to the start of the season, it looks like Paris Johnson was going to play guard regardless of whether Thayer Mumford came back, right? Right, because DeWan Jones. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm just, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm just eager to see how this offensive line shakes out because I don't think you're going to have those sort of ramifications. And if it's, is it a little bit more clear cut this year than it was last year? It is. It's like where it's, they are in an unbelievably fascinating spot of like too many tackles right now, not enough one year later that, that if you could, if you could spread this out a tiny little bit, they literally, we are, they had four tackles this year. They're going to have – they'll be fine next year. They might even have three, although I doubt it. I mean, we all think NPF is leaving, and it'll be fine, and it'll work out, and it'll be Paris and Dewan, and it'll be great. And then the next year, both Paris and Dewan will leave, and it's like, well, who are the tackles now? So it's it's a weird too much, not enough. We'll take a quick break. Urban and Luke discussion, some Michigan stuff next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug Maurice back with Nathan Baird and Stephen Means. Hope you guys are having a good holiday week, getting ready for the holiday season. This is an interesting question. I think it is very similar to what just happened at Oklahoma. From the 440, if Ryan Day took an NFL job tomorrow, would Luke Fickle be Ohio State's next head coach? So this to me would be exactly the Lincoln Riley, Brent Venables situation because Brent Venables had Oklahoma connections. He wasn't an Oklahoma player, but he was a big 12 player at Kansas state and coached at Oklahoma right before he went to Clemson. When you, when you saw Brent Venables waiting for a head coaching job, all those years, you kind of had Oklahoma in the back of your head. And the minute that Lincoln Riley left, the number one obvious candidate was Brent Venables. And then that's who they hired. 
Luke Fickle is even more connected to Ohio State. If Ryan Day did leave, you would be going from this offensive guru to a defensive guy. It is a transition of program attitude and aura if you do that. But my answer to this question is probably yes, because there's not another obvious guy to me. I don't think you could promote from within. I don't think it's Kevin Wilson. I don't think it's Tony Alford. I don't think it's Larry Johnson or Al Washington. And like Heartline's not positioned for it yet, right? Heartline's just to go from position coach, not a play caller at this age. Heartline's too young. And Luke's in the playoff, man. Like I don't, like Luke, Luke's in the playoff and is, I think has, matured as a coach and a program builder in a lot of ways in a million ways since when he had his year here in 2011, but Nathan, Holy moly, it would be a complete flip of the program attitude and aura. Yeah. I, I also said probably yes was the way I was going to answer it. Um, I've seen in the past where guys who are in that position, who've been passed over before at some point, they sort of put a wall up there and they're like, I'm not going to keep, you know, fishing in that pond because it, it's, it, it hasn't gotten, hasn't worked out for me in the past, but this is a little bit different because in a lot of those situations um, it's, they are the ones who would have to be like aspirant. Whereas I think in this situation, Ohio state, like it would be the obvious for like, you know what I mean? Like if Luke Fickle had never gone to Ohio state and there was just a guy up the road, if Luke Fickle had never been associated with Ohio state, but the head coach at Cincinnati who had just taken that team to the playoff were young ish and available for this kind of head. I think that's Ohio state would look at them first or very prominently anyway, in any kind of coaching search. Right. And the fact that he has these Ohio state ties only makes him an even better candidate. Would you have any different candidate Steven, or would Luke automatically rise to the top of the list? No, he's at the top. He's, I mean, he's from Columbus, Ohio, played here, coached here, uh, all that stuff. But then also Ohio state can even do what Oklahoma is doing right now and bring urban Meyer in to finish out the season before this tenure starts you know we well, just do the, the whole shebang oh we got an sorry. urban question we got an <laughs> okay, urban cool. question so the the thing is and one of the great doug lay maurice timings of my time here covering ohio state before the 2010 season i spent a lot of time working on a story about how Jim Tressel had made his own personal brand and style integrated with the Ohio State brand and style. And that Ohio State sort of had become what Jim Tressel was. And I talked to everybody, including uh, Les Wexner. And like, just like not, it wasn't just like, talk to Gene Smith about it. Like I, I reported that as much as I had reported anything. And while I was reporting it, as I was reporting it, the program was beginning to crack because all the trouble prior tattoo stuff was happening simultaneously to me calling people up and being like, isn't Jim Tressel great? He's going to be here forever. It was like, great, great job, Doug. Way to dig. It's like, uh, yeah, they were like opening the, picking up the phone when I called to be like, yeah, yeah, everything's great. And they're like hanging up the phone and getting on like the phone, like the red phone and being like, the program is falling apart. But that is 
at that time, like that was to me was like a thing because Ohio State had been Woody and then Earl was sort of like just like a, a, a continuation of Woody in a lot of ways. And then Coop was Coop in a way that his brand didn't integrate because his brand was like, you can't beat Michigan. And then here came Trestle. And then it was like, well, Ohio State like is the sweater vest now. Ohio State as a program is senatorial. Ohio State is this, this Trestle attitude. And it was interesting to me. But then since then, like, that is what's happened. Urban turned Ohio State into sort of this hard-charging recruit at a national level, raise the standard, demand the best, push yourself kind of place, right? Then Ryan Day, first as an offensive coordinator, now as a head coach, turned it into this offensive quarterback, receiver, passing game style of program. And that's what Ohio State is right now. When you think about Ohio State football, what do you think about? You think about the passing game. That's the first thing that comes to mind. He has integrated his style of football into the Ohio State brand. And that would completely change with Luke Fickle. And it would be a little interesting, Nathan, because this world where, and this is not a shot at Luke, but it's like if Ryan Day left tomorrow, would a Mecca stay? Caleb Burton stay? Would Devin Brown stay? Would Jaden Davis still be interested? Would like it just, it would change. And of course, he would get a make a big time offensive coordinator hire, but it's exactly what Oklahoma's going through right now. That when your identity of a program is so offensive and so tied to the head coach as the offensive mastermind. I don't know, even though you would stay Ohio State, Nathan, you wouldn't stay that version of Ohio State. And that version of Ohio State is how they're winning right now. And that would be interesting. That's a really good point. And you look at what Clemson went through, where even if you're keeping the head coach, when you lose, when Venables left, you saw the ramifications for them in recruiting, at least in the in the short term, um, you know, decommitments that were happening and, and things like that. So I think that's a fair thing to wonder about with day, although the timing of it in this cycle would be interesting too, that the, you know, you've already signed guys for 2022 before somebody would be leaving in this hypothetical that we're throwing out there. Uh, but I also think that, I mean, Luke fickle has shown himself to be a good judge of coaching talent a little bit too. I mean, you know, he brought in Marcus Freeman and look at where things have gone for him. So if he can go f- make a similar hire on offense, I mean, that's maybe the way you could, you could ask the other question, like what kind of offensive coordinator could you hire if you went out and lined up all this talent? I mean, what, what, what place, what offensive coordinator job in the country right now, except maybe like Alabama would be more sought after than Ohio state for the next three years. I think in the immediate, they'd be fine. I think like, the guys who are on the roster would just say, because you're not just going to, I think in year one of being a head coach, you just work with what your talent is. You don't necessarily go like, if you got all these wide receivers and these quarterbacks, he's not going to look in that room and go, we're going to run the ball 60 right. times. That's right. just like, that would not make any sense whatsoever. The ramifications would be going forward. The further you get away from the Ryan day players or the urban Meyer players or whoever was the last coach, the further you get away from that guy's players, the more you start to see the way the new head coach wants to do things come into play. So yeah, you would see the ramifications in the 2023 and 2024 recruiting class. And as soon as this last batch of wide receivers was was gone, that's when you would see we're going to run the ball 50 times, but it it would start out as, okay, we're going to pass it 
60% to run at 40%, and it would go 59, then 58, then 57, slowly make its way back. And recruits would notice that. You know who I do think would be the offensive coordinator for Luke Fickle, though? Brian Hartline. Brian Hartline. And the defensive coordinator would probably be Mike Tressel. <laughs> so it would be like you'd bring, because that's yeah. who Cincinnati's defensive coordinator is right now, Jim Tressel's yeah. nephew. So you would bring that back. And I think, are we, are we doing uh, the Luke Fickle imaginary Ohio State coaching staff? Is that what we're doing right now? I think that's what we're doing yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, I think you would bring in like a veteran quarterbacks coach to sort of be, maybe you wouldn't give him a title with Heartline. You'd give title the off the let, or maybe you'd make Kevin Wilson. If Kevin Wilson wanted to stay, you'd make Kevin Wilson, the quarterbacks coach instead of the tight ends coach that he is right now. But you had like a veteran, almost like a Madison kind of hire. You had like a veteran sort of co guy, but you're really letting Heartline run the show and call the plays. And that keeps Heartline here. And you have two like alumni at the head of the dragon. And, and actually though, like Mike Tressel's like, well, Jim Knowles is on the hook, man. Jim Knowles is. That is one of the things of when people are like, oh, Ryan Day, it's like they just hired a defensive coordinator for $1.9 million per for a three-year deal. I don't I don't know that it's like, hey, Jim Knowles, oh, I'm going to Bears, right? So, you know, but it's, it's funny to think about. But I do think on the list, on Gene's, the list in Gene Smith's desk that every AD has, I have to think Luke Fickle is at the top of it. I mean, how could he not be? How could he? I'm not sure you have a more obvious, can, you know, the – is it the greatest underdog story in college football history? I mean, in the modern era that Cincinnati made the playoff and he's, he's Luke fickle. Who's as tied to the Buckeyes as any, any person in the world. Um, it's almost too obvious. All right. Let's do an urban question now. Cause we're doing coaching stuff from the five, one, three, that, that question was from the four, four, oh, by the way, interesting, fun question from the four, four, oh, now from the five, one, three, would any of you guys like urban to come back to Ohio state and what role? Oh, <sighs> So this is complicated, except I think it's not complicated. It's like, I just don't think he can do it. And it's not related to losing in the NFL, but it's related to what happened everything else at the bar in Ohio and the accusation of the kicker said that he kicked him. And it's just like, I just don't think you can run that back. You just keep the good memories that you have here, but it doesn't feel right for anybody to me. Nathan, you agree? Yes. I think he can go be on TV again. Probably not. May, he may have to take a year off, but he often takes a year off. So not to not to make light of it, but he's had these gaps before where he kind of, you know, recedes into the background for briefly and then comes back out. And uh, I thought he was good on TV. I thought he was good at, at that job. So I think he's probably got a place in Fox's studio in the future. But uh, even in the whatever ad assistant ad thing he did before where i mean i saw him you know walking into the woody a few times carrying a cup of coffee i don't really you know i don't know what he did that was like tangible in that role but it, it may be something like that down the line but i it would not be in the short term i just feel like it's it is a little bit too messy right now i think even if you take away that stuff and it's just he got fired because they were losing um i just don't see what the benefit is in bringing him back just I, I understood it in year one because Ryan's new. He's never been head coach, but also Urban's probably still heavily attached to the program and it just keeps him around. But Day's got this thing humming now. Contrary, I mean, yes, this didn't this season didn't end the way everybody hoped it would, but for the most part, things are humming in a great way right now. I don't necessarily understand the only ties he still has here are Mick Marotti and, and Mark Pantoni. 
and they're just doing their jobs as normal, as good as anybody in the country. So I don't see the benefit of of bringing a guy back just because it's Urban Meyer. I think actually having him around in that capacity the first year, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Doug. I don't know how much it had to do with like being a shoulder over or a, um, someone standing over Ryan's shoulder. I think that could almost have been a detriment, especially when you mm-hmm. had the whole the whole infrastructure here that Urban had. I think there was though a tangible benefit to having Urban Meyer still associated with your athletic department. There was an aura around Urban Meyer, no matter how things fizzled out at the end of 2018 or how things ended in that, he still was a, a, a important presence in college sports. And to have that still associated with your athletic department when you needed someone to help raise money, when you needed strategic thinking about certain things, I, I think there was probably a benefit to that. That benefit does not currently exist. He can't offer you that right now. No, he broke his aura. He broke his oar. Mm-hmm. And now maybe maybe he can piece it back together that, again, when he left Florida, his his I, I would say when he left Florida, his his aura wasn't broken, but it was cracked a little bit, right? Because people still bring up the arrest of mm-hmm. Florida and that kind of thing and the burnout. And But he, he like, reshaped it for sure at Ohio State. But you know, Ohio State has this history of, of Earl Bruce was around a lot. And John Cooper is around now. But they were around much later in their lives in like ceremonial roles, right? They could, they would be or just be around. They're in the press box every now and then. You'll see Coop. Coop will show up at a Brian Day news conference, just kind of hanging out. They, you know, Earl Bruce had a radio show for a long time. I think there's a place where Urban Meyer, if he wants it, when he's like done, 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 will have a ceremonial role at Ohio State if he chooses to retire in Columbus instead of in Florida. And if he wants to have an office, Trestle made a big deal about when they redid the Woody, my God, 15 years ago now, they had an office for Coop and an office for Earl Bruce, or maybe they shared it, but it was like the coach emeritus office, right? That Trestle was all about that. And if Trestle, when, if Trestle, if and when he retires as the president of Youngstown State, if he wants that, if he wants to retire in Columbus, I think he will be around that way. And if Jim Trestle wants to spend his Saturday afternoons when he's 80 years old, sitting in the Ohio State press box, they will extend him that honorarium, right? And so that's there for Urban, but I don't know that the way it went down, that you could have Urban do anything more than that, right? At least without a break, Nathan, as you said, to sort of let time heal some wounds. Yeah. I, I also, for people who haven't listened yet, I thought your conversation with Joshua Perry was fantastic about this stuff. The one thing that I, I thought maybe deserved further conversation, maybe you don't have to get into it today, was you both were in agreement of this idea of like, well, what makes someone great also, or what, what, what is someone's great flaw can also be what makes them great. And I'm wondering if we have just sort of rethought as a society, I think we're getting a little bit away from that, that I understand that he takes losing hard and it like eats at him. And we're not talking about him in any kind of coaching capacity. So I'm just kind of moving, I guess, onto this other conversation. But like if you can't process the losing, especially inevitable losing at the NFL level where everything is parity, then you then the then it isn't a benefit like it doesn't. When we saw it, I think it probably happened in Jacksonville a little bit this year, that if you can't, if you take that loss and you don't know how to process that uh, constructively, then it, I think, is probably leading to the next loss. And I think we've like changed the way, and it, it, it's, it's more true probably in the NFL than it is in college, where you don't have a cupcake waiting for you a couple times a year. 
No, I, I agree with that. It is just basic. If you can't, if you don't know how to control your emotions, then like maybe you shouldn't be doing this in the first place. And Nick Saban kind of had to learn that. And that's why he came back to the college level because he got up there and he couldn't necessarily run things the way he wanted to do it all the time. He hated the fact that, you know, you kind of got rewarded for losing because you get the best player in every year. Well, he didn't have to worry about that. He came back to college and he gets the first pick in the draft every year and he gets the second and third and fourth pick in the draft. I'm not saying the result, the answer to, for Urban Myers come back to college because there were so many off the field issues for him as well, but yeah, don't put yourself in situations if you don't know how to handle the negative part of that. And that seems to be part of the problem with what was going on down there in Jacksonville. So I do think two things I think have happened with Urban that the idea of his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness, I think does apply. I think you guys are both right that the context has changed. Society has changed. Players at all levels are more empowered. The coach player relationship, both in college and in the pros has changed. And the, for lack of a better description, the old school stuff just doesn't fly as much as it did. And so I do think that, sort of what you're saying, Nathan, that like, hey, sort of like, well, that's how he is. And that that doesn't fly as much today as it did even five years ago. And, and I do agree with that. I think that is an important point to make. I also think, and I don't know how to say this, but it's like, I don't think Urban's at the top of his game anymore. He's not that old, but he does have this brain cyst, which is something that came up a lot at the end of Ohio State. And people have asked me about that now. Like that has not been a discussion point yet. With the Jacksonville situation, when I'm telling you, man, when I was in his office and he was talking about the cyst in his brain late in the 2018 season, he presented it as two choices, surgery to remove it or quit because it was not sustainable the way it was. And to my knowledge, he has not had that surgery and he took a job again. But I, and I don't know, like, I just think that cyst had an effect on him in 2018. He's not talking about that now. So that's because it's one of the things, if you talk about it, it can sound like an excuse, but man, you sure, you sure made it sound real in 2018. I don't know how that affects him, right? I don't know that he's, he's just, none of us are, but he's just, I think not physically at the top of his game, the way he was when he was 43 or 48 or 51, he's 57 now. So I think, it's a true fact. Yes, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. That's a true fact. Yes, the context has changed, and that doesn't fly exactly as much as it used to, which you, you were right to bring up. But also, I don't think he's the best of Urban anymore. And, and again, just because he's been doing it for two decades, and maybe the best of Urban, even though, I mean, you know, Urban Meyer, who is, you know, winning a national championship at Ohio state in 2014 is hard charging and hates losing whatever, but although he was sitting with the pizza in the thing in 2013, didn't look too happy yeah. then. Right. So, but maybe he would have found a better way that now the urban who's seven years older is maybe just a little less capable of sort of mentally and physically pushing through because you're just not as a hundred percent on your game. Not you've lost it, but you're just not your best, best self. Well, and I would say, too, to finish my point from before, it's not just that society has changed and looks at people differently. I think we've I think society also believes now that that is less effective leadership, that if you can't process the losing, then you're not as effective of a leader that you've got to be. Able, it can't just be that every loss devastates you to the point that you like lose your mind. But I want to throw my own rapid fire question real quick. 
if Urban Meyer had not been talked into coaching the Jacksonville Jaguars this past year, if Shad Khan had, if he had not, if he had not, you know, come through on that offer or Urban had turned it down, would he be Notre Dame's head coach today? Um, I think there was a lot of momentum for Marcus Freeman that would have remained. I think it is, it's such a stark choice, but there would have been people at Notre Dame, I think, pushing for Urban. And I certainly think it's very, very possible because Urban is knows people there, I think, still and understands that culture and is part of that. And quite and possible. If you're, quite if possible. you're Marcus Freeman and you're sticking around as Urban's defensive coordinator, that doesn't seem like that much of a slap in the face. Um, I don't know if Marcus would fit with Urban, but Marcus might. Yeah. Ohio State's defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. There you <laughs> go. I think there you go. Oh, yeah. look at this. Yeah. Um, Dominoes. Can you make just to play devil's advocate here? Could you make a case that Urban retired from being a college football coach and just like he'd never done the NFL before, and it was like this opportunity to do it with just maybe generational quarterbacks, or so it was just kind of this one-off. And if it works, it works. And if it no, it clearly didn't work to, to the biggest extreme, but the point of if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't, but at least I tried it, but I don't really want to coach college football. Again, I've done that for 20 plus years. This this is your next Possible. book title, Doug urban Meyer colon the last college football coach. Oh man. That's really good. It's really good. That's really good. I mean, there, there's, I can't believe so- you just gave that up. Yeah. Well, what am I going to do? Write it. There's so much. I mean, there really I gotta do is a there's, podcast tomorrow. There's there's a lot of. I mean, there's like there are there are echoes of Woody in in Urban here, right? That there really are that kind of thing. That like there are no echoes of Woody in Ryan Day, right? That it, it is one of these things that it's it's. And I think when Urban was here, at its best, this is like the prologue to the book. When it was working, those echoes of Woody like attached people to urban Meyer and made it like made it added to what was happening at Ohio state because urban had an understanding. He grew up with that. He was almost, it's like he was Woody's grandson. Cause it was almost like Earl was sort of his pseudo dad and Earl is the progeny of Woody. And now here's urban and Trestle wasn't the same way. Cause Trestle and urban both have their connections to Earl. And then and when it works, you want that. And then Ryan Day is this outsider. Ryan Day is growing up in New Hampshire, just watching Ohio State, Michigan on TV once a year, right? And then things like this happen, and it's like maybe a little distance isn't such a bad thing, right? That it's like you did, that that was an era of Ohio State football, but you maybe you want to get away from that. And I do think people have always said this about Ryan Day from the start that the kind of coach that we're talking about, this sort of modern coach who hates to lose, but has an understanding and cares about everybody's mental health and well-being and relates to players as people and the coach-player relationship changes a little bit. It just seems like Ryan Day is more of the moment maybe than Urban Meyer is. And like the last two weeks, Steven seems to have accentuated and emphasized that even though we kind of already knew it, it's like Mm -hmm. we really know that now. Yeah, Ryan Day is a player's coach and that's like the buzzword to use nowadays. And it's been to bring up Sam again, he's really adapted to that. 
You know, he's not, you know, this off the branch of Bear Bryant anymore, right? He's more in line with the, the players coach things. But even with that, to the point we, you just made about Urban Meyer and Woody and everybody loves that as long as you're winning, but it's the moment you start losing that we start distancing ourselves from that type of behavior. I mean, Ryan Day can be a player co- coach all he wants, but lose to Michigan again. And let's see if we still are in love with this players coach thing. No, and I know, and I bet, I bet, and a lot of this is just, I mean, it's the same discussion we everybody he's getting asked. He's getting asked toughness time. questions right now. Like, that's happening. And, and I bet you there are some people listening to this who would say, well, I want a little more Urban Meyer in this program. Mm-hmm. I want hard charging, push people to the edge because, you know, Ohio State didn't play its best game against Michigan. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that that thinking is totally wrong. But also it's a little reactive and you can't judge stuff by one game. And I think you have to judge the program holistically. And, you know, Urban Meyer didn't play Aiden Hutchinson. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's some of that stuff in there too. But it is this toughness discussion. There's a lot of the stuff that we're talking about that is hidden in that, quote, toughness discussion. And some of it's fair and some of it's not. I wonder what the Venn diagram is among people who were running – Urban Meyer out of town after the Iowa and Purdue losses, but now want him back because of this one Michigan loss. I bet there's some overlap there. Right. But it's like, would you, what's want, would you want that the current Urban Meyer versus the current Ryan Day? Who do you want for 12 games? Who do you want for the whole offseason? Who do you want for every part of it? But then, like, who do you want on Michigan week? Right. And you, but you can't, you don't get to split it. You got to take contract. one or the other. No, that's the coaching contract. It's just, hey, Ryan, can you take one of your weeks of two weeks vacation during the Michigan week? And we'll just bring in Urban Meyer for just that week, though. Listen, though, I mean, this is not even this is not even joking. Trestle, again, one of Trestle's big things was they would start sort of Michigan week with like this big Earl speech. And Earl Bruce would get the team fired up for Michigan week and talk about what is up. I don't know, man, I might. What can do? Would you bring Urban Meyer back? I might bring him back for one day a year. I might bring him back for the Sunday after the game before Michigan and let Urban Meyer start delivering the Michigan week speech. I might do that. I'm not saying Ryan Day can't do it, but I'm saying like when somebody who lived it, breathed it, did it right, all that he doesn't have to talk about what he did as a coach, all the stuff, why you think that you can't work. Like a lot of that. There we go. I think we just found the Urban Meyer role. I don't know what Urban Meyer's going to do for the next 365 days, but I'd ask him to go in his iPhone and mark in his calendar for the Sunday of Michigan week. Hey, can you come in and talk to our guys? That might work. Let's do a Jim Knowles question. It's not quite as rapid fire, but man, some of these questions are too good. This is Todd from Michigan. I'm glad for the Jim Knowles hire, but should I be super excited to hear that he's a 4-2-5 guy? Again, that four-two-five defense, four defensive linemen, two linebackers, five guys in the secondary, two corners, three safeties. It seems the sentiment is we need a defense that can stand up to playoff teams, but our problem this year was not making the playoffs at all because we got bullied by two teams who ran the ball down our throat against a smaller lineup. We play in the Big Ten, and it seems like a first things first issue. Should I be concerned? Todd from Michigan. This is a fascinating question. This is, I think, something that we – can talk about more about in the offseason. We have touched on it before, though, Nathan, the idea of, you know, are you building a playoff team or are you building a Big Ten team? And I understand what Todd's saying with first things first, but also, like, 
they've been able to assume the first thing's first thing for a while. And if you don't prepare for the second thing, I'm not sure you're going to win the second thing. And that really is kind of the goal. Right. How does the Knowles defense and the Knowles hire fit into this discussion, do you think? Well, a couple of things I would point out. Number one, the, the conversation was the exact opposite a year ago at this time, right? It was, well, so what if you've put together a defense that can win the Big Ten? You've got to go beat these other teams. Secondly, one of the teams they lost to this year was not a Big Ten team. It was Oregon. And I understand what people are as far as it being, you know, smaller, speedy team, whatever. But I would argue that that wasn't a like a Big Ten offense that came in and necessarily beat Ohio State. Although it was coordinated by someone who was formerly a Big Ten offensive coordinator. So maybe that played a, a small role. I just feel like don't get too caught up in the 4-2-5 thing. Partially because, to me, the difference between a modern Sam linebacker and what I think Ohio State ultimately wants the bullet to be, which is probably, I don't know that Ronnie Hickman is like the prototypical bullet or that third safety, whatever you want to call it. I think the difference between those two positions should be fairly minimal. That you're getting, that's the whole point, is that you're almost, you got to go find a unique athlete that can give you the elements of both. And I don't know that Ronnie Hickman, although he led this team in tackles by a huge margin and played very well this year, I'm not trying to knock Ronnie Hickman this year, but I don't know if in, in their minds, if that's the perfect, he would still be on the field in a four to any four to five they did, but he might not be the perfect like look at that position that you might want something a little bit more linebacker ish, but just with more skills, more speed, more, um, whatever, more, more lateral movement, everything that goes into it, more coverage skills. So that's why I think don't get too caught up in the four, two, five, get caught up in, are they getting the right players regardless of what arrangement you put them on the field in? I think that's still where there's a deficiency on the defense. Both these last two years, I still just, it's not the standard of um, talent that Ohio state, I think usually holds itself to. I halfway agree with that. I don't think Ronnie Hickman was the problem last year. I mean, he had. And I'm not asserting that either. I'm not asserting that either. I'm just kind of talking about the differences between those positions. I think part of the reason his role changed is because the other positions weren't doing their job better. You know, the cover safety. I mean, you lost Josh Proctor. So now, yes, Ronnie Hickman has to be back there more often because he's got to help Bryson Shaw because he's giving stuff up. I, I I do agree with the idea of don't get caught up in the four two five. Ohio State's defense wasn't bad because of its scheme. It was bad because they didn't have players who maximized that scheme. Just like I mean, in 2019, they were still running a four three with three linebackers on the field and, you know, only four defensive backs. And it worked and they were able to stop the run and the pass because the players maximized that scheme. That's that's what, you know, college football is play, you know, players dictate steam. So if the players are dictating that you should be running a four two five, but they're not maximizing that, that's when you get, you know, whether it's Minnesota or Oregon or Penn state or Michigan, all bullying you at the line of scrimmage, that has nothing to do with scheme guys just didn't win their battles. I almost feel like we have to throw 2019 out sometimes though, because it's like what four man front with chase young on the edge, no matter what you did behind him, mm-hmm. wouldn't have ranked as one of the like three best defenses in the country that yeah. year. I mean, that's, Especially when- it, so it's, it, it's hard to make those comparisons. I've done it too. And it's hard yeah. to make those comparisons in retrospect. Cause you always, the caveat you always come back to is like, but they had the best player in football yeah. on the edge of that defense. And you can only throw to one side of the field. So it's because the other one's kind of locked down. That's fair. I think the, the young presence was much more important than the Akuta presence. So I do think CJ Hicks will help this a little bit. I do think there is a discussion. I don't know that you can play 
like a true, true, true four, two, five against Wisconsin and Iowa and maybe Michigan when it runs the ball, like it ran the other day. Like, I do think you need to have that third linebackery guy ready for some of those, just like they had when Justin Hillier was the fourth linebacker, right? Well, again, we're talking about times in 2020 when they put four linebackers on the field against a team like Wisconsin. Then it's like last year, they had two most of the time. I do. I mean, Jim Knowles is going to adjust. You don't play your scheme so much that if a team puts three tight ends on the field, like, well, well, this is what we're going to do. Like you adjust your personnel to fit what the, to match what the offense is doing. So they're going to face offenses that are going to run the, and they probably Wisconsin and Iowa on the schedule next year. So they're going to, they are going to adjust to that. And I think they need to be prepared for that personnel wise, but my bigger, and we, this is what we talked about. There was the time, right. When they, when they would have a defense and then when they got to the playoff, they're switching their defense and playing two high safeties for the first time and asking Marcus Williamson to do something he's never done the whole year because now they're changing their defense for Clemson. I think you have to play your playoff defense as your base and adjust it to a Big Ten defense for matchups. I don't think you can go through the year with a Big Ten defense that you then adjust to a playoff defense. I just think, I think first things first, honestly, is playoff first. So Todd, like I, I, I think it's a really smart question and they do have to have a personnel answer to that somewhere in there, but they got so light at linebacker this year, right. That they didn't even, cause they, I mean, early in the year, they sort of had that third linebacker. Dallas Gantt was playing some and they were doing this and that. They almost ran out of linebackers. So I do think they need a personnel answer to that, but I just think four, two, five as your base with this, these safeties who can run and hit, and play the run, I just I just think is the way to go. And again, it's one of those things. Like this work out like Court Williams comes in. Like he's a safety, but like Court Williams has the mind of a linebacker, I think, and enough of a build of a linebacker, but he can cover and he can be a safety in a four-two-five, but then put his nose in there and make tackles in the run game. If the five that you're talking about, that that last safety was Pete Werner. I think it changes the conversation a little bit because he did a lot of those things in 2019 when he was being the same linebacker for this team. But so then the question is, do they need to go find another Pete Werner or is the answer that when they have their next Pete Werner, their linebackers have to be better. So you don't have to play Werner at weak side linebacker. Uh, now I, I know what you're saying. I mean, it's, I mean, the linebackers have to be better overall. Right. I mean, I, I again, personnel wise, they didn't have linebackers making plays. And then like your safe, your deep safeties have to tackle too and make sure that those runs don't get out of the house. You know, Blake Corm can't go 55 on that play. He's got to go 18. And so it's hard, but I think you can play a four, two, five, where you still look for linebackers and safeties who really can tackle that. They don't even that the scheme Feels like it's designed to stop the pass, but the attitude of the players and their skill sets can still be designed yeah. to stop the yeah. run, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And I think that's – I from things I've read about Knowles, that is a little bit of, I think, what he's tried to do. The personnel that he's he's put on the field. Now, again, it's, sometimes it's just dependent on what personnel they had at Oklahoma State at that moment. Yeah. But that seems to be the philosophy a little bit. Yeah. Attacks. That's what players, I mean, Sonny Style said it. The players who are actually on the roster right now have all said it. He, he likes to attack. He likes to blitz a lot. And what's this? It's an oversimplification, but it's just very simple. The players have to be better at their jobs. And that can solve a lot of issues here. 
if guys don't miss as many tackles. You just brought up the Blake Quorum situation. You can talk about C.J. Verdell, Muhammad Ibrahim. If guys just do their jobs better, some of this, some of these issues don't exist, regardless of what you know base defense is. Yeah, no, I think uh, we, we could talk about this a lot again, but it's like when you rewatch Ohio State, as Ryan, I always said it, scheme, it's coaching, it's personnel. And we saw all the situations where that popped up. The scheme was an issue early and they switched it. But like the coaching, you know, those, the inability to stop those runs on the edge by trading off the blocks and stuff as they did against Oregon, that's a coaching issue that they didn't adjust to. And then we just, we just saw that the personnel in the back seven, a lot of the year wasn't up to it. So Scheme matters, but I don't think you can be too worried about the scheme because if you put the right personnel, any scheme can work. But part of their scheme issues this year were that they didn't have the right personnel in the right scheme and it it fed on each other in a bad way. So I think, Todd, it's a really good question. We're going to talk a lot about it this offseason as we get to know more about Jim Knowles' defense. And we're going to ask him. We'll make sure we ask him these kind of questions. Stopping the run, the bottom line, that the idea that they lost to Oregon and Michigan because they couldn't stop the run, stopping the run from Jim Knowles' scheme, that's what we have to ask about. And we have to talk to him about that a lot, and we will. Some Rose Bowl stuff. There's actually some really good Michigan questions about what it would mean for Ohio State if Michigan doesn't win that I do want to get to, but I don't think we're going to get to it on this pod. So let's do this real quick from the 908. Does anyone else besides me hope for players to opt out to give next guys up more reps? Again, I think this discussion, as we've talked about, is centered around Garrett Wilson and Nicholas petit Frere. But this is a fan, Stephen, who's sort of ready for the future. So – is that a reasonable thing to think that don't be worried about opt-outs almost embrace opt-outs if they happen. Yeah. Just because, I mean, if you're not playing for a championship, let me see what we're going to be doing next year, especially at those two positions where if Nicholas Petit prayer is not playing, it probably just means Paris Johnson's playing. Well, actually, no, they probably still play fair at left tackle and then bumping Matthew Jones, but, so that doesn't change anything. It's more just about the Garrett situation. And if he's not playing, Julian's probably the starter again, just like he was in the Nebraska game. But you also rotate in some Marvin Harrison Jr. You see some of Mecca. You just, yes. If you're not playing for a championship, I'm all for it. Let's just start getting ready for the future now instead of living in whatever this season was. Yeah, I, everything that happened beginning sometime in the fourth quarter against Michigan was about preparing to threaten for a national championship in 2022. So whatever, whatever has to happen to help you do that, I think yeah. is what Ohio, is, is the best thing for Ohio State. So this is a, a coaching question that is, I have two questions that we'll, we'll do together. From the 614, how soon after the Rose Bowl do you expect to hear about coaching changes? What changes do you predict? And then this is sort of connected to that from the 614. If Utah beats Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, could we expect any coaching changes? Three losses, three losses in a season isn't the end of the world for most programs, but it's pretty much unacceptable at Ohio State. Is there a world in which Kerry Combs isn't invited back, perhaps as the fall guy, to satiate angry fans demanding that something be done? So let's address, first of all, Nathan, the idea of do we think the result of the Rose Bowl will have any impact on what coaches are back or not? You know, unless it was like a real butt whooping, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think so. I The way Ryan Day answered it last week, 
made me think that the plan is known internally or that guys more or less know where they stand right now. Did you guys get that same vibe? Yeah. I mean, he said he talked to all the coaches. So, and that they continually talk. I mean, yes. so I guess he, which obviously you do, you're preparing for a game. So I guess you could take that however you want. But I just got the impression that like, that guys aren't necessarily like twisting in the wind right now. But I would say I did ask you a question. I think maybe when I can't remember if it was on the pod or if we were just chatting, like, Hey, how much do you think like how this recruiting class ended makes an impact on who's coming back next year? And you're like, Oh yeah. I mean, you would think that there's probably some impact. So if yeah. they were to come out and just get absolutely embarrassed by Utah, then maybe, maybe it would have an impact. But I think if you just, if they lose 31 to 28, I don't know that that result, changes because you've already by taking the second loss to Michigan you already took a third like karmic loss or like a you took another loss by not being in the play by having to go play a non-playoff game in the first place so I agree with that I think the recruiting class had much more effect than what this game against Utah will do I think a lot is probably known but I don't know that anything is 100% set in stone right. so and I think we will know almost immediately. I think when about who's back and who's not within 48 hours. I think like the Jim Knowles is like going to be here on January 2nd. The Rose Bowl's on January 1st. Jim's January 2nd is when Jim Knowles starts. I think like, hey, Jim Knowles is here might be coupled with and these guys are not here. And that they and that if that's the case, then like Ryan Day is already maneuvering to figure out who his next guys might be at a couple of other spots. And so this is different than with amateur athletes. And so I am not as worried about doing this kind of stuff. So I'm okay with doing predictions and listen, I wish I knew more. I wish I had had inside conversations with some of these people about some of this stuff. I have not. So this is not, this is reading tea leaves and nothing more than that. But I think this is where I am. I know, I do know that as much as Ohio State extended itself to pay Jim Knowles $1.9 million per year, I, I do know there's a feeling that some people would like them to extend a little more even with coaching salaries for the assistants. And that belief makes me wonder if they can fit like $4 million coaches on the staff if you have Kevin Wilson and Larry Johnson and Kerry Combs and Jim Knowles. That still feels like a bit much to me. And I just think Kerry Combs won't be back. I just think that Jim Knowles is replacing Kerry Combs. He's the coordinator replacing the coordinator. And I just have a hard time because I just don't know what it else is. They're not getting rid of Matt Barnes. I don't think. And so the other thing is like, just tell him Parker Fleming, sorry, bro. But don't know that they're doing that. So I guess it could be out Washington, but I don't think that they would like whatever or dismiss out Washington. Maybe, maybe there's a conversation about Al, you know, you looked around, not that you looked around, but he had offers last year. Maybe if you get an offer, maybe think about it this time. I think that's possible, but this is all a guess. And I'll just make guesses. My guess is Kerry Combs is not back. And I think when you add together, the recruiting misses in the last two offensive line classes and the fact that Greg Sudrawa had back surgery in the middle of the year, I think you start adding some personal stuff into the professional stud 
listen, man, it's a grind for you, whatever. I don't know. I just think maybe Stud's not back. And that would be, those are my two guesses right now. Anybody else want to make a guess? I mean, those would be my two most prominent guesses. I'm less sure than I used to be, sure in quotes, that Kerry Combs would leave. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, if you're being ruthless and you're doing the best thing for the staff, if Kerry Combs can coexist with whoever you're bringing in as the DC and the new DC is okay with it, then the guy that I would probably bump would be Parker Fleming and just split up the special teams coordinating like they do a lot of the places. I don't think the answer is getting rid of Al Washington and then making your defensive coordinator also coach the linebackers. I don't think that's what the plan here is. That doesn't, that doesn't ring right to me. And on top of that, Al Washington's in an interesting situation here because by all accounts seemed to be a guy very much on the rise and his players seemed to really enjoy playing for him, or at least did until we saw what happened with Kayvon Pope and a little bit of what happened with Dallas Gantt. So obviously there hadn't really been a big conflict yet to happen. And then once it did, it kind of spilled out. So uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by maybe him on this staff. Um, But I don't think that, him leaving and then just giving that job to Knowles makes sense. There would have to be, I think that Knowles is not going to coach. Position, right. Position so, yeah. So, so, it, so that's what I'm saying. Like it would, there would have to be, you it can make, just be a you one can make for Matt one. Barnes. You can make Mac Barnes coach linebackers. If you're keeping Combs and just making him yeah. the overall yeah. defensive backs coach. But that's I'm also about. becoming more and more convinced that they need to have two defensive back coaches. I, I agree with the stud one. Um, this one seems like the writing's on the wall. As every day passes, I'm less and less convinced that Kerry won't be back just because um, and I understand the assistant coaches are middle managers and all that stuff. Um, but we saw what happened last time he left and how things took a dip. And even in this cycle, it's like they even like thought the idea that somebody could use that as a recruiting pitch against Ohio State open the it's probably it's not all of the reason, but it's at least half of the reason for why Tans Brooks is now at Texas and not coming to Columbus anymore. So I don't like, and that's even a thought before we even are confirmed in anything yet. And so I don't know if day wants to take that chance of, especially at that position with like, we're talking about preparing a defense for the playoff. I mean, you got to have cornerbacks. you got to have a secondary that can get the job done. And do you really want to, you know, have all this effort that you put in with the A.J. Harris's of the world and the Christian Grays and the Caleb Downs and all these guys, especially in this 2023 class, you want all that to go to waste because you don't have Kerry Combs here anymore. And he's the guy who's built the relationship with a lot of those guys. I mean, the thing about Kerry Combs is he wasn't brought here to be a schemer. I mean, well, he wasn't brought here because he's a schemer. That's the yeah. better way to say it. He was brought here in part because of all of these other things he has, the way he knows how to recruit the proven recruiting of defensive backs, the proving the development of defensive backs, the fire he brings to a sideline and the team in general. And all of those things are still true. So it's not as if he didn't get it done as, as the schemer. And now you're just like, well, where do we possibly shove this guy? Like what other skills does he have? He has like all of the other skills. If you were starting a, if you're starting a staff from scratch and you were to just ask, if you were just like to, you were going to start the university of, I don't know, somewhere university of, 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 of East Liverpool, and you were just having to, you know, you need, you wanted someone with to, to start a staff with for the first time. I, Kerry Combs would be on that list, wouldn't you? Like all the things he can bring to a college 
coaching staff, like tangible, important things. So that's what makes the question with him. But you're not wrong, Doug, that it's also a very awkward fit in for a number of reasons. Nick Saban was a defensive backs coach at Ohio State. I think, I don't know, was Lou Holtz the defensive backs coach? But like they have a great, I'm not so sure if you were doing an all-time Ohio State coaching staff that Kerry Combs isn't your defensive backs coach. Like I, for real. So um, Matt Barnes in 2018, his last year at Maryland before Ryan Day hired him was the linebackers coach. So, yep. and, and guys move around all the time. Sure. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And wind up in spots where like, it's not, it's, I don't think Matt Barnes was a linebacker in high school. I mean, when he played in college. So we're make we're trying to read tea leaves and make a lot of guesses and, and uh, we'll discuss this more, but I do think overall, I think we're going to find out like pretty much right away. I think, yeah. I think there might be press releases the day after the Rose bowl. Okay. We're going to take a last quick break, come back with one or two more things next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug, Nathan, and Steven, I'm going to save a couple of these because they're really good, and I, and I just want to save them a little bit. I, we will try this. From the 724, this is about the ambiguity around players' roles, and I, this might be our second or last one or last one. From the 724, I don't think I've ever seen so much ambiguity around players' roles in what I've seen the last two years. I thought At first, I thought it was just due to COVID, but this year was just weirder. Running back, Master Teague versus Mayan Williams as a backup seemed to change weekly. What happened with Seven Banks? He was our best corner in 2020, only hardly played this year. Seemed like no explanation. Nickel cover safety was also weird with Lathan Ransom and Marcus Williamson. What happened to linebacker Taraja Mitchell? What do you think was the reason this seemed to change week to week, especially on defense? And do you think this is contributing to some of the transfers, players not knowing their defined roles? So at the beginning of the year, we talked a lot about, right, they're playing too many defensive guys. They're playing like 19 defensive guys. And then it was like, hey, they needed to define roles. And then they seemed to define roles a little bit. And then they like re-expanded and got back to a place where I think the roles were more defined, but some of those defined roles were guys splitting roles. Like they defined the cover safety role. It was Marcus Williamson and Lathan Ransom. That was how they defined it. I don't know that anybody had any illusions about that. They both played. So, but Nathan, I know, I know what the texture is saying here. Because especially, like, I thought the Master Teague, Mayan Williams, they both dealt with injuries, right? Which I think complicated stuff. And I think injuries complicated a lot of this to some extent. But, like, the running back one, like, while they were both dealing with injuries, it also did feel like it was sort of like a week-to-week who practiced better competition to some extent. The seven banks thing, you've written and talked about that a lot, was just a little weird. There was an injury component, but it felt like it wasn't only an injury thing. In general, do you feel what the texture is feeling? And if so, is it bad? I feel what they're feeling if you're looking at it, I guess, from the outside, from a fan perspective. But there's a couple things I would remind people of. Number one, Seven Banks might have been the best cornerback on that 2020 team. Doesn't mean he was a good cornerback. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the other factor here is, <laughs> that, is that it's like, oh, that it's like thinking about baseball. Like, oh, we just lost our ace pitcher to free agency like you you had like a five era just because he was the best pitcher on your team doesn't mean he was actually an ace and just because seven banks was the best cornerback on that 2020 team maybe the most consistent doesn't mean he was actually that great of a cornerback and maybe we or the national prognosticators or whatever jumped the gun a little bit on proclaiming seven banks a a first round cornerback uh, off of what he did in 2020 and similarly with the running backs i mean all these guys that we're talking about 
Have, have we mentioned anybody yet in this conversation that was ranked above the national like 200? I mean, Taraja Mitchell was. Taraja Mitchell, Mitchell was. was. Mitchell was, but but had a weird. But also, year. again, had had like had three years to show himself worthy of more and and hadn't done it. Um, partially because he was blocked, but maybe partially not because he was blocked. But that's the one guy. All these other guys you're talking about, like kind of guys that other Big Ten teams would have maybe recruited, and we wouldn't have like blinked an eye at it. You know what I mean? What is- I don't think they would have been maybe the best players in some of those classes. But like if 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 uh, Nebraska gets a cornerback that's ranked like number 189 in the country, you're like, oh, that was a pretty good gift for Nebraska. But you don't think of it as like affecting whether or not they can beat Ohio State. Whereas when Ohio State has to play half of its roster of guys like that, it makes them more susceptible to losing to Nebraska. I don't think it was that weird. I think. They had no idea what they had because they were coming off a COVID year where unlike in 2019, where all the backups got a lot of reps because they were blowing everybody out. They didn't get that. And so they played a lot of guys early as frustrating as it was, but because they were trying to figure out what they had while starting the guys who had the older guys, which is what you do when you don't know what you have. You start the older guys and you mix in a lot of guys behind them until you figure out what you have. Once they figured that out, they realized that the young guys in a situ- it was a situation of the young guy and the older guy are of equal talent. So we're going to play the young guy because then, you know, he's probably got a higher ceiling. And so you saw Taraja Mitchell start playing less. You get situations like Kayvon Pope, you know, basically throwing a temper tantrum in the game. Dallas can't leaving. Um, Seven Banks was hurt to start the year, so he never had that opportunity. But Denzel Burke and Cameron Brown proved to be pretty good corners while – I mean, he didn't. He didn't prove to be a, a pretty good corner. In fact, he looked like he regressed from the 2020 season. So it was a combination of all those things. You had no idea what you had. And then you figured out that the young guys are better than the old guys. And so Taraja Mitchell just ends up not playing. It wasn't weird. It just it ended up costing them two games because you had to play so many young guys with no experience. I do think, although a lot of them, I think you can lump them together. I also think there's some individual things that aren't connected. But we talk about this a lot about like, hey, don't be loyal to the old guys if the young guys are better. That's what happened at linebacker. Mm-hmm. Now, the young guys weren't all Americans. So, well, you look and say, well, maybe you still if, if Tommy Eichenberg, Seal Chambers and Cody Simon sort of wound up being your top three linebackers. Maybe you still kind of wish Ohio State's linebackers were better than that because none of those guys were all Big Ten. But they they took the jobs of Taraja Mitchell, Dallas Gant, Kayvon Pope, which is what people want. That's what one, what fans want. If the young guys are better, play them. So Taraja Mitchell just got played off the field, which is what people want. Now, the thing that makes it a little weird is Marcus Williamson got played off the field and then played himself back on the field. So if, if Marcus Williamson had started the year playing and then like Lathan Ransom and Cam Martinez just took his job, which it seemed like was happening, and then – Cam Martinez stopped playing. I do think that was because actually some of this stuff, when we talk about the bullet and stuff, Ronnie Hickman wound up just being a deep safety. The guy who actually has to be able to play the run, I think in the four, two, five is the cover safety. And I think they wound up in a spot where Lathan Ransom and Cam Martinez were a bit more cover guys. And they trusted Marcus Williamson more against the run and to do some of the other stuff, which I actually think is a complicating factor for who, how they figure out to move guys around. But anyway, Marcus Williamson is the guy who really throws us off. Cause like he was, we thought he need like a year ago. It was like, well, you can't start Marcus Williamson. So then like, okay, here come Cam Martinez, Latham ransom, but then he took it back. And then he actually played pretty well. Like, right. So that's confusing. The running back thing I think is partially 
injury related, but like, I'm okay with that. If you have two guys who are equal and fight it out in practice, I think that is a pretty unique circumstance. And then the seven banks thing is just a little weird. It's just a little weird. And he actually did play a decent amount, right? I mean, he and Cam Brown kind of shared that spot in a lot of ways. And, but I just think there was something a little weird with seven banks. So I think we can go through those things individually and they're all different. I think you want competition. I think you want to reward competition. I think you want to be open-minded to young guys, but I also think maybe you're too deep changing a lot week to week based on who looked better at practice on Tuesday and Wednesday, maybe isn't the best, but you want some of that. You don't want guys just getting a spot and keeping it just because you want guys to have to earn it to keep it. So I do think I, whoever mentioned that like, there's just some COVID weirdness that they 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 didn't have yeah. a full evaluation of everybody. I also do think that contributed, Stephen. I think that's so. I think that complicated it too. So to have a, a bigger picture, and I know this, I hate silver lining people. Sometimes you just want to be sad because you lost. But here's the silver lining: all those young guys got a lot of experience, and a lot of them are coming back. Plus, you're adding in an influx of talent from this 2022 class with some guys like CJ Hicks or Sonny Styles who might be able to play for you. I think this year, even if it costs you two games and it costs you a playoff spot, is going to do wonders for next season. So, I mean, we talked about Angry Bama going into the 2020 season after you know losing twice in 2019. Angry Ohio State with a lot of guys coming back oh, and they have the, ne- yeah. And they have the necessary, like, even if they, maybe Cody Simon takes that jump as a top 100 recruit because he got all this year of learning experience. Maybe steel chambers is ready to go. Denzel Burks in year two, uh, every pretty much everybody in the back seven. Then you add in Jacqueline Johnson and Jordan Hancock into that mix. Cam Brown's coming back. So there's enough young guys who got necessary experience that they're now back on track. Oh, no, no. Like angry Ohio state is like a month of pots. Yeah. 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 All right. We're going to wrap up with Quinn Ewers from the four one nine. This is really not a big deal, but I did find it odd that Quinn Ewers has not sent out a social media post about Ohio state. It seems to be normal practice. Thanking the last school and coaches before moving on. Did Quinn not like his time at Ohio state again? I believe the fans are ready to move on from him, but it just seems odd. Is this like, this is confirmed. Like we never saw Cause he's, he definitely sent out like a, Hey, hey, Longhorns, I'm here, kind of thing, right? On social media, but there's not a not a farewell Columbus high. I enjoyed my I've never months. seen one. I've I mean, never seen one, but nor was I really like looking for one. Yeah. I, I I hadn't I hadn't like thought of it in that because everything had just seemed so cut and dry. And also, I mean, was he here long enough to know if he enjoyed his time or not? Right. It's yeah. like that a Simpsons meme. He walked in and he walked right back out the door. I mean, yeah, you know, he was he grandpa Simpson this for sure. Yeah. I guess Except instead of getting his hat on the way back out, he grabbed the big bag of cash. Yeah. Do we have the ability to do that? Do we have a can we get it? that Photoshop? Oh. What do you do? Photoshop well, a bag of money for the hat? Somebody oh, out there can put Quinn Ewers's face on Grandpa Simpson's body. And with a bag of cash instead of the hat, I'm sure it can be done. I mean, this is one of these things. I mean, it's not not to make light of it because, listen, he's he's a young man and he has the right to do what he wants to do. And best of luck to him with whatever. But he might be the least Buckeye Buckeye ever. <laughs> like, what is who is somebody you who played a snap as an Ohio State Buckeye? 
but was the least connected to the program ever. Cause like definitely there was is. just, I, I think there's definitely is a vibe of like, he just, I just think as we said before, he just never got connected. So what are you saying goodbye to exactly? He just never got connected. He didn't have a recruiting class with him. He got here late. I think just from a personality standpoint, again, like you're just a year younger than every, than everybody. You just kind of, you know, sort of just, you know, never, I don't he know was he here was because around. Yeah. He, he came here because Texas wasn't good enough to keep him in their recruited class. And then they, that's were. what, yeah. And then so. they were good enough to get him. So it's, and no, it's we know fine. Why I was here. And yeah. We don't want to have a repeat discussion. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right, right. It's just, yeah. I mean, he didn't even lose his black stripe when he was here. He, I just, you know, that's, that's a good yeah. point. I just don't think either side got connected to each other. And no. so there's no goodbye post. Quinn Ewers makes Joe Burrow look like Rex Kern. I mean, it's not even, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's. Yeah, it's they can't do the developed here thing with him. It's not even fair to Joe Burrow to like even put his name in it, but you're right. Yeah. Like, because Joe Burrow put in like a lot of sweat equity to this place. And like, you know how like at the, at the end of pros careers, when they're playing for like random teams that just kind of get lost in the shuffle, you're going to go to a, a, a music festival one day and you're going to see a Quinn Ewers Ohio State football jersey. And you're going to think it's not a real thing. It's like, oh, no. Yeah. He handed the ball off twice. Yeah. Like at like Michigan Smith. State. I, I would. Anybody ever wears a Quinn Ewers jersey to a Ohio State game. That needs to be a story. I wonder, was he oh. one of the guys that you could get? If you are a Buckeye Talk tech subscriber, send us a text about it. Or if you want to send us a message on Twitter, did anyone buy a Quinn Ewers jersey? And if so, what are you doing with it? Although it, it's funny for anybody who's ever been to an NFL game as a fan, you see some weird ass jerseys, man. Like I remember going to Bears games and you would see like David Terrell. What are you wearing that David Terrell to Cade McNown? What, what is wrong with you? But you know, it's cause like, well, I spent like 75 bucks on this Jersey when he was a rookie and I can't just throw it out. Yeah. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Okay. We'll stop there. We didn't get to the, is a Michigan win good or bad for Ohio state. We didn't get to uh, who's your favorite Spider-Man actor. We didn't get to a question about my wife, but we'll get to those later. There's an Ed Warner, Carrie Combs question that somebody asked that I can dig into a little bit. We're going to hit a couple more rapid fires this week. Just check the feed, hang with us. We can't promise exactly what's going to happen, but we're going to give you multiple pods before Christmas and we'll figure it out. We appreciate you guys being part of it. Try the text at 614-350-3315. What a weird little gift that would be to give somebody, right? That it's like you put it in a little envelope, maybe put it in a box. My mom likes to wrap Christmas presents like in wheat thins boxes and stuff, like random things from a pantry. And it's always like, did I get Ritz crackers as a Christmas present or is it just the box? So maybe put, you know, print it out. I signed you up for Buckeye Talk and put it in a Ritz cracker box and wrap it up and put it under the tree. $3.99 a month, 14-day free trial. Drop a review at Apple Podcasts if you're in a festive holiday mood. If you're kind of grumpy about it, I don't know. You can still drop one anyway if you want to. And read cleveland.com slash Buckeye Talk. Again, a couple more coming this week. Thanks for being part of this one. For Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was... Buckeye Talk. <laughs>